This is Matt Hayes with Saturday Down South, and I want to tell you about a new podcast we're launching. Saturday Lives Forever is dedicated to the iconic players and moments of college football. Those unforgettable moments where you remember where you were when you watched it. Season one of Saturday Lives Forever is coming soon, but subscribe now and make sure you don't miss an episode. Search for Saturday Lives Forever in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're obsessed like us with college football and can't get enough of reliving fall Saturdays, you're going to love this new show. Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, we hopped off the call last week, and I think within the first, like, I don't know, three seconds, you pointed something out. We didn't say anything, really, about Mississippi State with our (laughs) SEC West crystal ball. Mm -hmm. Good point by you. So we're going to get to a lot today. SEC East crystal ball is coming, uh, as is an interview with Jake Crane, a.k.a. J-Boy. And then we're going to close out with an SEC East edition of Let's Get Bold, which we are now calling... Thanks to Will and a certain SpongeBob SquarePants, bold and brash. Yes, sir. I, th- I think we're going to be able to 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 get that name going. That's going to catch on because it's got the alliteration. That's that's all you need when when you come up with a name for a segment or any sort of idea like that. Listen, but Squidward first. was a true artist. You know, he really put his thought into that piece, bold and brash. So when it belonged in the trash, you know, he was as shocked as anyone. That's a, a lot of Squidward thoughts that I didn't think we'd get to today, this early in the pod, first minute here. But, hey, that's, that's what we're doing today. Mississippi State thoughts. I believe in the year two bump for Mike Leach. And mm-hmm. I know Feinbaum came on here, was pretty skeptical about him. There was some pushback on some of the comments that he said on these airwaves. But I believe the Leach offense will absolutely improve because it really can't get much worse than last year. Um, Fair. If you can't block, you know, good luck in this league. I'm still a little bit worried about that. I don't think they're going to be world beaters on the offensive line, but 7-5, and five, Mississippi State, sure. Returned 16 players who started at least six games. That's the byproduct of having all of that in-season turnover that they had and basically reshaping the entire roster to be able to run the air raid. You also keep your defensive coordinator, Zach Arnett, and the schedule more forgiving with having some of those non-SEC games on there. Still tricky though. I have Mississippi State beating NC State, who's gonna be pretty good this year, and then losing at Memphis. So also then following that non-conference stretch by beating LSU to open up SEC play, which now I have your attention, Will. I know that would be that would be bonkers. Not like last year though, not that kind of crazy. This time I think it's more about the defense. Zach Garnett against the team that he turned down delivers a gem <laughs> against Max Johnson. Well, turned down, you know, you use those terms loosely. He had a conversation with LSU, like the guy, you know, had a had a conversation. Who knows if anything was officially thrown out there, but needless to say, we assume that Zach Garnett and LSU had mutual interest. So I, I think in that game, besides just being the, the Zach Arnett, um, it's not even a redemption game, but a, hey, LSU, this is what you missed out on type of game. I, I think that they are able to dial up some good looks against Max Johnson. I think LSU having that inconsistent ground game hurts in that one as well. Max Johnson turns it over a couple of times, maybe he picks on Forbes and Emerson and that elite secondary. Uh, one too many times. And Mississippi State is part of the West Madness that we talked about last week. 
I still think this is an up and down thing overall though for Mississippi State this year. Will Rogers, more experienced options at receiver. Jaden Wally as a go-to guy became a thing down the stretch last year. The offense looked really, really good once he got going. I shouldn't say really, really good. That's putting on a little bit too thick here in our opening Mississippi State segment that nobody else is doing right now in the age of the alliance and all that. But it was fine. Whatever. It was an acceptable. It was fine. Yeah. It was more acceptable. That's a better way to phrase it. Thank you, Will. Austin Williams, possession receiver, Jaquavius Marks, gonna catch passes out of the backfield. You're kind of assuming that you're going to be able to get a lot out of these these transfers as well. Jamar Calvin comes from Washington State. He was in Leach's offense for two years there. He and Makai Polk, uh, the transfer from Cal, those guys have been getting a lot of very encouraging um, encouraging marks in camp, and they can both line up out wide, which is important for what Mississippi State wants to do. And then you've got the four-star true freshman Teddy Knox and Antonio Harmon. So the air raid should look more like the air in year two, which that's not saying a whole lot. SEC StatCat had this great breakdown about how Leach has to adjust. It's route running, it's using the tight end more with 11 personnel, trying to disguise some of those looks, one running back, one tight end, for those not necessarily well-versed in the art of 11 personnel, which Nick Saban is apparently one of those people, although he was just joking about that at SEC Media Days. He gets what 11 and 12 personnel are. Um, it's evolving. That's the biggest thing for Leach. That has to happen to a certain degree. History tells us that Leach's offense is always bad in year one and improves by at least a touchdown in year two. If he does that in the SEC, all right, you're on the right track. You're feeling good about this. But two big picture things that I wonder about with Mississippi State. Zach Arnett. I actually think Mississippi State might have struck gold with him because, well, what type of offense does Zach Arnett run? 3-3-5 defense. That's right. That's right. If the 3-3-5 yields another top half SEC group, there will be a lot of talk about whether or not Mississippi State can retain him, which would be a good problem to have in a way. But I think Mississippi State should be in good shape in that regard. The market for defensive minds as FBS head coaches is meh. Even for a 34-year-old up-and-coming guy like Zach Arnett. I did this breakdown of the highest paid defensive coaches from last year and what they're doing now because I did this piece on Alex Grinch, the Oklahoma defensive coordinator. So of the 10 highest paid defensive coordinators from 2020, three were fired, two got a raise with an extension, and the three others were retained. None of them left for head coaching gigs. In fact, of huh. the 16 FBS head coaching head coach openings this past offseason, we'll take a guess how many were filled by defensive-minded head coaches. Okay, so you, 16. 16. Well, you just said the top 10 guys, none of them left for head coaching jobs. So I'm going to guess like a like two. Four okay. is, the, is the answer, but two at power five. Oh, okay. So... The only two at Power Five, Brett Bielema at Illinois and Clark Lee at Vandy. That's Brett it. Brett a defensive he just He's like a dude to me. Yeah. He's just like a football he's, guy. Yeah, yeah, he's one of those. He technically qualifies. So not even known as being a defensive guru or anything like that because if you go back to the Brett Bielema stuff at, at Wisconsin, you would say it's all about the offensive line. But he's considered a defensive-minded head coach because his defensive line roots. So Illinois and Vandy are the only two places at – power five programs that hired a defensive-minded head coach. So I think Mississippi State might have just already dodged the biggest bullet. That is a team like LSU coming in and trying to poach a Zach Arnett. Dude gets on a plane, talks to LSU, comes back, gets a raise from $600,000 a year to a million dollars a year. And then Mississippi State says, you know what? That $450,000 buyout, um, if you left for another program, 
That's now at 1.7 million that we would get Mississippi State if you leave for a place like LSU or Alabama. So credit Mississippi State Athletic Director John Cohen for that deal. But something on that leech deal that's worth remembering. Remember that state employees in Mississippi cannot sign a contract that's longer than four years. Of course, we everybody rule. knows that. <laughs> it's very odd and it always kind of comes up and then people kind of forget about it. People in Mississippi know this like very, very well, but we don't necessarily consider this in the outside world quite as much. Lane got an extension after year one, Leach did not. Leach is under, con under contract through 2023, which is ironic because before, right before he left, Washington State for Mississippi State. He signed an extension to stay at Washington State through 2024. Obviously that got ripped up. But what if the air raid is a train wreck this year? What if it's a repeat of last year? Mississippi State fired Joe Moorhead after two years. Moorhead's offense dropped one point per game. Leach's offense was 110 in FBS last year. It was bad. If Leach ruffles some feathers and thinks takes his heels in a little bit deeper, which wouldn't be shocking given his his overall you know, attitude. Uh, is it possible? Mississippi State could pay the remaining uh, $10 million. Do I think that'll happen? No. In all likelihood, I, I believe in the year two bump. I, I think it's a thing. My projection is that Mississippi State's going to go seven and five overall, four and four in the SEC, and Leach would get a year or two he would be allowed to have a year or two added to his deal after this season. But just keep that in mind if things unravel at Mississippi State. Well, was that enough Mississippi State talk after bypassing it last that week? That was perfect. And like, I love Mississippi State. We've talked about this. One of our family <laughs> friends was like really connected to Mississippi State. I've been to a ton of their games. Yeah, I'll say this, that that four-year rule, that's a nugget right there. I'll, I'll give you credit on that. And and the thing that's honestly great about that is like, you really can't make too expensive a mistake. It's like, all right, like we, we hire a guy, we got four years. There's no like giant contract. It's like, hey, you're here and we'll talk about it in four years, no matter if we're great or bad or whatever's up. They're not paying a Gus Malzahn buyout. Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're not doing that because if they're firing a coach with four years left on his deal, um, that, I, I don't know how that would happen. And one would think that they would be doing that with cause so they wouldn't have to pay that buyout to begin with. But it is something worth keeping in mind. So hopefully Mississippi State fans, that was enough Mississippi State talk after not giving you any of that last week. Should I talk some alliance uh, before we get to crystal ball or do we just want to leave it at, this is incredibly stupid if the Big Ten, ACC, and Pac-12 want to delay playoff expansion just because they want to spite the SEC. Read Matt Hayes, um, who wrote a fantastic piece on first and 10. I know I say that all the time, but this really, really drove it home and why the SEC can be kind of indifferent on this whole thing and just kind of sit, sit back and laugh while, as Hayes calls it, the spiteful three tries to form this, this group, this scheduling pact, and try and have a bigger say when really the SEC is still going to control the sport. Will, do I need to talk more about that or are we, we good there? No, I mean, I just, it's hilarious because as the playoff expands, you're going to have more like spaces for these mid-tier teams anyway. So like the concept of like Alabama, Georgia, you know, Alabama, LSU, or like all, you know, there's three or four SEC teams fighting at the top every year. It's not gonna be an issue because like even a team like Michigan that hate to be this guy, but you know, they get in the Ohio State game and get knocked back every year. They're still kind of in that top 10 range. So it's like, I don't really know why they need more. Like, I don't know why this is bad for them. It seems like this is still a better deal than the one they're coming out of. I don't know. Why, so you're saying um, you don't know why they would hold off on expansion, right? Exactly. They're, they're yeah. trying to delay it. Yes. Yeah. 
Agreed, 100%. And that's, that's the thing about this that even if you think, even if you have this fear that the SEC is going to get maybe five teams into the playoff and you're trying to do this thing where you're only making it so that there's a three conference max, which the SEC would never agree to that. And I'm not even sure it'd be smart for the Big Ten to do that because the Big Ten has had years in which it could have gotten four teams into the field or even five. I think there was one year where that could have happened and you're hurting yourself by doing that and you're also taking money away, which right now during a time when you're trying to recoup that money from the pandemic, that tens of millions of dollars you lost in ticket revenue, that just seems like a dumb idea. And the Big Ten has has its reasoning for wanting to operate the way that it has with Kevin Warren. And I said, you know, when I when I had Feinbaum on here, look, like from a strategic standpoint, I get it to a certain extent. It's kind of like their only move. But if we're also talking about them delaying playoff expansion, that's where we really get stupid, and they'd be over they'd be overthinking this massively. So we'll kind of wait and see the way that this all plays out. And from a scheduling standpoint, just a weird thing. But I wanted to just hit on that because I know a lot of people have been talking about that, and I still ended up talking more about Mississippi State than I did the Alliance. So whatever, that's fine. Take that. Um, rest of college football. Let's do uh, SEC's crystal ball. Remember how I said that I thought the West was going to be reminiscent of like 2014 because of how wild it was going to be? Well, I, I feel like I've said that probably like eight, nine times on this podcast this offseason. Yeah. I don't think the East is like that at all. <laughs> Maybe some upsets, definitely, but I think Georgia is still in the driver's seat all year. Georgia goes unbeaten in SEC play for the first time since 1982. I realize that Georgia never lost a conference game while Herschel was there. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I mean he was his stint was super long, but still like that that's pretty yeah, that that's pretty wild. Yeah, and only six game conference schedules, so people will push back on that, but still, I mean like 18 and 0 while Herschel was there, it's that's pretty yeah. darn good. Um I don't want to dig into a ton of Georgia stuff here because I already have a lot and I think they could win every conference game by at least two scores. Hopefully I'm not upsetting too many Florida fans by saying that. Brandon Marcello has said something pretty similar. I think others have come out on the record saying stuff like that. And we'll get into a little bit more Georgia later in the week with my official preseason predictions with all the Power 5 conference champs with playoff teams. Might talk a little bit of Heisman stuff. Maybe we'll get into some individual awards, all of that. So we'll do some Georgia-based predictions later on as well in bold and brash. But here are um, standings that I have laid out for the SEC East in 2021. Georgia coming in first, 11-1 overall, 8-0 in the SEC with that one loss coming to Clemson in the opener. We're going to talk about that just a little bit more, I would think. Um, eventually, not this week, though. Florida, I have coming in at second at nine and three overall, five and three in the SEC. Kentucky at third, eight and four overall, four and four in the SEC. Mizzou at fourth, six and six overall, three and five in the SEC. Tennessee at fifth, six and six overall, two and six in the SEC. South Carolina, five and seven overall, two and six in the SEC. And Vandy pulling up the rear at three and nine overall and one and seven in the SEC. Huge improvement, folks. Hey, man. Three game difference. When you, have a, when, when you have a goose egg, you see that number three in the win column. That's almost a month of, of better post game feeling. That's like three weeks worth of satisfaction for Vandy fans that they did not get last year. I don't know if, if a lot of us can ever really understand what it's like to go an entire season without watching your team win a game. 
But that had to just be, I mean, if you're a Vandy fan, you probably stopped tuning in after like week three. And if you didn't, you are more diehard than anything I've ever been in my entire life. And I say that as a, as a Chicago Cubs fan. Wait, wait, wait. What's, the, what's the number you check out of Cubs losses next season? Like if they start, if they open up 0-10, are you out? Or like what's the loss number of Cubs where you're like, all right, I'm, I'm done? I think it was, what was it? It was like 97 or they started off like 0-13 or something like that. And even in a 162 game season, when you realize, oh, we're not, we're not ending the 1908 jokes this year, <laughs> you check out pretty early. I, I don't want to say that that I'm checked out by mid-May, but yeah, uh, you're not exactly going into the summer with any sort of optimism or whatever. You you will pay attention once again if they go on a significant winning streak. It'll take winning to get you back, but yeah, Bandy mm-hmm. fans, ugh. Sorry, hopefully they get some early season wins to, to get back or at least feel back for a little bit. But that was Vandy. Toughest calls. <laughs> In general, I think there is a lot of parity two through six. I didn't, however, struggle with where to have those teams. The only thing that I really debated a lot, two through six, Florida versus Kentucky for that number two spot. Mm-hmm. Almost had Kentucky there. Trendy thing to say in the preseason. And maybe there's a part of me who is looking ahead to that game in Lexington in early October. I might be there for that. We'll see. Um, might have to might have to figure out a way to get up to Lexington for that game. Um, and assuming that Kentucky is probably going to find some absurd way to blow a late lead against Florida is factored into my, my preseason projection. When you've seen it happen so many times, I haven't won there since 1986 against Florida. Yeah, it's a little bit tough. Yeah. 1986, long time, wasn't even a lot then. That would be the difference in in my projections. But with Kentucky, as it relates specifically to them this year, I think they're much better um, later on in the season as opposed to early. And I worry about the start with Will Levis in that offense Mm -hmm. because the depth at receiver or lack thereof is probably going to hold them back at certain points. And I think being a summer enrollee as a quarterback is really tough. How how many summer enrollees really crushed it from the jump in the SEC? Even Joe Burrow, who was a summer enrollee back in 2018, pretty limited with what he was able to do. And part of that was the depth behind him with dealing with the, the Miles Brennan injury where he's dressed but not really able to play. Mm-hmm. But with the speed that this league is played at, even grad transfers can sometimes take a minute to get used to it. And there's not really a long list of transfer quarterbacks who enrolled in summer and then took off in the SEC. Ryan Mallett, Felipe Franks were both spring enrollees. Same with Jared Stidham, Chad Kelly, Cam Newton. I have a tough time seeing Will Levis come in and just take the league by storm. It'll just take a little bit of time to get going to get used to things. I have Kentucky starting one and four in SEC play and then winning three straight in conference play to end the season. But you kind of lay it out and, you know, three of those losses in that stretch would be consecutive games. So they have home against Florida, home against LSU and at Georgia. Not going to be favoring any of those. So it's not really crazy to say that. The one that I have them losing that where it gets a little bit complicated is the South Carolina game. Ooh, now, now hold on. Let me let me pause you real quick because I'm looking at this and my dumb self is like starting to believe because if you look at their schedule, like weeks one through four, ULM, Mizzou, Tennessee, Chattanooga, South Carolina, Florida. <laughs> so they have a nice little runway there 
up to that Florida game. But, you know what I'm saying, You're, I could see them losing to South Carolina for sure. But if they don't, they're going to look like one of the hottest teams in America um, hosting Florida in week five. I think people are a little bit more wait and see when it comes to Kentucky. When you're, you're the right. team that has... When you're the team that has one winning season in conference play in the last 40 years, people tend to hold off on on those expectations when they don't have a a big time non-conference game or anything like that. Louisiana Monroe was like maybe the worst team in FBS last year, but they have Rich Rod this year. Well, I'm not saying they're going to be, I'm not, all I'm talking about is like, mind you, like you said, it goes Florida, LSU, Georgia. It's going to get bad fast. Like not, not saying anything negative about them, but I'm just saying the early part of the season is soft. So if you're, if you want to have a transfer quarterback like that, that's a pretty much a dream scenario in the SEC. You know what I'm saying? True. There is something that we will get to in Bold and Brash that digs a little bit more into the construction of the Kentucky schedule and the way that Let's just say somebody got really bold with the Kentucky schedule. It's a little teaser for for later. So, you know, I I just think that the offense struggles to find that rhythm and it takes a little bit of time. So it's boring, but I still have Florida at number two in East. And I've talked to people who think Florida is more like a seven win team. And I know there are others like my guy, Mike Renner at Pro Football Focus, my editor, Chris Wright. They think Emory Jones is going to be the breakout star in college football this year. And I'm somewhere in the middle on him. I think Florida's going to be more balanced. We've talked about that a lot. Run game will be better, even if Jones isn't Nick Fitzgerald as a runner, though Pro Football Focus had Jones with the best run grade of any quarterback in America last year, so who knows. I know Florida fans are pumped about Demarcus Bowman, the five-star transfer Mm -hmm. from Clemson. Damian Pierce is going to be involved. Naquan Wright, he's like the SEC East version of Sean Shivers. I want a full year of Malik Davis in this offense. I think he's going to catch a ton of passes if he can stay healthy the way that this offense is built and the things that Dan Mullen is going to dial up with some of these high percentage throws. So I think Emory Jones absolutely has all SEC upside. Um, A lot of the the things that I'm saying about Max Johnson, I feel like I'm saying about Emory Jones as well. I also think that he might have games where it looks like you really don't want to be down two scores with him in obvious passing situations. And that's what I worried about. Some of that, yeah, we saw it in the Cotton Bowl. I know, limited reps, kind of tough to fault a kid for that. A bit of a herky-jerky season for Florida in 2021? I think so. I have losses coming to Alabama, Georgia, and Mizzou. That's right. Not a loss to LSU, but Mizzou. So let's dig into that because I have biggest upsets here. Florida beats LSU in Death Valley, which that would be an upset. Mizzou beats Florida in Columbia. Vandy beats Mizzou in Nashville. All right. Vandy's lone SEC win of 2021. Shout out Clark Lee. And South Carolina beats Kentucky. Ah, that game's in Columbia. I don't know how massive of an upset that is, but it, it would be very important for Shane Beamer and given the streak that Kentucky had against South Carolina, that would be that would be a huge win for South Carolina fans. I know they would appreciate that. Let's do um, the breakdown, though, of Florida beating LSU in Death Valley first. I teased that last week, or the other day, rather, and said that we were going to be able to kind of dig into that because I think a redemption game is in store for Florida. And I would like, though, to put an asterisk on this at the top and say that if Todd Grantham, if he insists on sending corner blitzes at Max Johnson throughout the game, just like he did last year, then I do not stand by this one, and this prediction is void. I need somebody to track that for me. If he does like more than five corner blitzes on Max Johnson, <laughs> and you look up, and Max Johnson is like five of five for 240 yards in those spots, 
void prediction. That doesn't count, that's not fair, that's cheating. Todd Grantham shouldn't be able to do that. I'm assuming that he's like the person who sticks their hand on a hot stove and goes, ow, that's hot. Like Most of us could watch that game and realize Pretty bad strategy, but you just never know. You would hopefully not repeat that mistake if you're Todd Grantham. So as long as that happens, redemption game. That game last year, I know we talk about how crazy it was, Marco Wilson, the shoe toss, all that stuff, but the worst pass defense in America against the best pass offense in America, and which side won? Eli Ricks on the by road. himself, pretty much. Yeah. He was just Eli like, well, Ricks. guess I'm going to make myself some money today, and that's kind of what happened in that game. Eli Ricks, when he goes to the NFL, and he's going to have no shortage of film because he's going to be a three-year starter, he's going to still have stuff from that game as a true freshman that will be very much a part of his pre-draft, uh, pre-draft tape and all the, the hype with him. But this year... I think playing a more balanced style works against LSU. I think Emory Jones rises to the occasion. Mullen calls a heck of a game to keep LSU's defense guessing. Grantham sends the right pressure to at least kind of get Max Johnson sped up a little bit. Not necessarily like, oh, hey, there's a there's a corner coming off uh, Keishon Butte. I'm just going to throw to him because I can read that because I, I like know how to process off uh, you know defenses and coverages and stuff like that. And I know that that's where I'm going to go every single time. Uh, I think Emory Jones gets his first signature victory at Florida. And I, I think Florida fans really, really take that one for um, for what it is, it, which would be a rivalry game that has been frustrating at times and was frustrating, obviously, last year. But, Will, have you as an LSU fan braced for the idea of Florida having a redemption game, or did you just kind of hear all that and roll your eyes? Uh I mean, it wouldn't shock me. I think a couple of things about Florida I'm going to be looking for. So let me just like take a quick side tangent. Obviously, Florida lost a lot of pass catchers last year. Um, do you think that they're going to go more into one of those like older Mullen, like early Mullen styles, like uh, you know Fitzgerald, where it's it's not as open? You know what I'm saying? There are fewer receivers on the field. Or do you think that now that he found that magic with Trask, do you think that's the offense? I think Mullen likes spreading it out. Mm-hmm. I think that they're not going to throw, obviously, like they're not going to throw with the same sort of volume. Oh, yeah. He's never going to be, he's always been the guy that, that has at least four or five targets mm-hmm. that he's going to feature in that offense. And that was, that was the case last year. I mean, even though we talked a lot about the big three with Pitts, Tony, and Grimes, it was still an offense that got like Malik Davis involved a ton. And oh, yeah. If Pitts, if Pitts was out, then he'd get the other two tight ends, you know, Zipper and Gamble involved. And so I kind of think that they're going to spread it out a ton. It's just not going to be the same sort of volume. Like, I don't think Florida's going to have a thousand-year receiver. I don't think Justin Short or Jacob Copeland are developing any of those guys. But I think they still have enough options to be able to spread the attack. Just more of those higher percentage throws. Yeah, so I, I think it kind of like... I hate to just simplify it to that, but I think if they build an offense around like you know the new system and what works, I, I think that would it wouldn't shock me because here's the thing: this isn't rocket science. But if you run the ball more and you control the tempo, Todd Grantham's defense is on the field less, right? So that's why I asked that question because if they try to you know open it up and they try to just get this vertical passing game going, and especially I mean they were great at calling screens last year. I don't think that should come out of their game at all. Um, but point being, I mean it wouldn't shock me. Like you said, it's a it's a it's a rivalry game. I think I was certain that. LSU was going to get beat 
to a pulp last year. So don't listen to my prediction on these games. Yeah. I just think that, you know, in the swamp, I think that was the time for them to take a step up. Just at, like taking all biases aside, I think that was the time to just cruise in the SC championship game and say, all right, this is our coming out party. We're going to beat the pulp out of the defending national champion. You know, put 40 on them with no, you know, no Derek Stingley and just really make a case to the committee. And they took a step back. So I'm not going to be more scared, you know, playing them in Baton Rouge with the second year of Max Johnson and no Kyle Trask. I think those are all fair points. It was weird, the Kyle Pitts absence in that game too. Yeah. You just felt like, oh, Florida's maybe taking its foot off the gas. And how healthy Pitts was for that game, I, I don't know. Um, you, you would have to really ask him about that. But they, you see the, the shots of him on the sidelines kind of like, oh, maybe they made a mistake here by doing this. But I, I think it ends up being a redemption game for Florida. Um, but I think it's just one of those years in which you don't know what Florida team you're going to get on exactly. a basis. And that, that was kind of the same for LSU last year oh, to yeah. a certain extent. It's still the case and for LSU. LSU might be horrible next year. <laughs> Who knows? Could be. Like, Could be. And I have Florida and LSU with the same overall projection, which is 9-3 and three overall, 5-3 and three in the SEC. And then maybe that game decides a New Year's Six birth. And if that's what we're talking about and Florida has the advantage, then how would that impact as we talk about LSU if they're playing – you know, in the Citrus Bowl or something like that, instead of getting to one of these New Year's Six games. So that's that's something worth keeping in mind. Um, but on the other side of the coin, I have Florida getting upset by Mizzou. I think once a year, Eli Drinkwitz is gonna show how frisky Mizzou is. He's gonna have some epic post-game celebration. Maybe he'll call out an opposing coach. He would love to call out Mullen, I know that. Mm -hmm. It'll always be a home game, of course, probably as like a two-score home dog. And he's gonna have one of these how do you like me now type of games. And this year, I think that happens against Florida. Florida fans know about coming out sluggish in Columbia. They, yep. they hear that and they're like, oh, yep, seen that movie before. I think with the SEC East hopes gone, coming off of that Georgia game, Drinkowitz comes out and he just throws the kitchen sink at a Florida team who isn't quite awake for probably what's gonna be an 11 a.m. local time game, very mm. far away from Gainesville. And it's trick plays, fourth down conversions, onside kicks, whole deal. It winds up being one of those games where Jones is playing from a one to two score deficit throughout and it proves costly. That clinches bowl eligibility for Mizzou. And you're kind of just like, what is this Florida team? What, what are we what are we dealing with here? Because maybe they go toe to toe with Georgia the week before, and then it's all of a sudden like, oh, well, it was Austin Mizzou. That felt like we were watching an SEC East title game, and now we, we can't quite figure this team out. So, will good upset call, bad upset call? I, I love the relationship between Florida and Mizzou because since Mizzou joined the SEC, uh, I kind of feel like. They've been, you know, they have been successful. I mean, they won the East twice, um, obviously, right after they joined the conference. And it's almost like, from a Florida fan's perspective, early, it's, it's not like they didn't take them seriously, but it's like Mizzou is always kind of trying to show that they, not show they belong, because they do belong, but Florida is usually the team they do that against. You know what I'm saying? They, whenever, like, that's kind of, it's a rivalry that Florida fans don't really enjoy. You know what I'm saying? Because you just never know when Mizzou is going to be like, no, no, like, we're actually the third team in the SEC East. You're like, oh, not not today, man, please. <laughs> so, yeah. Bad blood there. No, exactly. Don't like, and, and, oh, yeah, and after last year, and especially, you know, you got two coaches that are really, you know, fiery guys. I'm going to be, I'm going to be definitely tuned in for that one this year. That'll be the best, I'm gonna say right now, it'll be the best 11 a.m. game, well, noon for those of us in, uh, on East Coast time um, of that weekend. And it'll be one of those like, is Florida gonna figure this out? Uh, I don't know. And 
I think Mizzou just has, has those moments every once in a while to keep the rest of us kind of on our toes. Other notable things here with the SEC East crystal ball. Tennessee at 6-6. Six and six. Didn't talk a lot of Tennessee there. I think the Vols should have their best offense since 2016. That's not saying much. I don't know necessarily that they're going to have the same starting quarterback from start to finish. I've cooled down a bit on my Hendon Hooker take that the Virginia Tech transfer is going to be the guy because it kind of sounds like Joe Milton might be the guy to start off the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, copy and paste my um, summer enrollee quarterback rant that I use for Will Levis. Just put that right in here. But if I'm Hendon Hooker and if that happens, I'd probably wait it out and see if Joe Milton's going to struggle. <laughs> because... I, I, I absolutely think he could. I, I just don't think the accuracy is there to, to run that offense at a, a super high level. Who knows? I could be wrong. Maybe maybe the system really was what held him back in Michigan. I know there was talk about that, but I don't know, man. I kind of tend to think that you got to have a little bit more accuracy. You got to be a little bit more um, a little bit more precise with the downfield stuff to execute what Josh Heupel wants to run. Having said that, I think the Vols should still find a way to put up a lot of points and get to a bowl game. Though, as we've said, not all six win seasons are created equal. Going two and six in SEC play with wins against South Carolina, Vandy, probably would be a tough pill to swallow in one sense. But if this offense looks somewhat fun, which that's what all the receivers keep talking about at Tennessee, that will at least make them interesting. Maybe get some 2017 Ole Miss vibes, very limited depth, depth, the NCAA cloud sort of hangs over the program throughout the fall, but they at least have a fun offense that, that can explode just like that. I think that is, if you're a Tennessee fan, what you can hope for going into this year, being a floor type of year for Josh Heupel before he gets all of his personnel that he wants in there with some of the speed on the outside. Will, am I too high, too low on Tennessee? Man, just uh, pulling up the old Tennessee schedule, and you see in week two, the last team you want to play in week two if you're Tennessee, which is Pitt Panthers. The team oh, that, Pat Narduzzi, man. <laughs> the team that has literally built a brand for the last, like, 10, 20 years are just jumping up and biting you. Um, but, yeah, I mean, kind of, I, I, I could see it. I mean, my, my hypo opinions are well documented. Um, that offense is very fun from what I've seen. The key is, you know, getting confidence, and obviously a QB battle doesn't do a ton for that. Um, you know, I think that a lot of this is going to be dependent on line play uh, because when that offense tends to struggle, it's when the defense gets pressure and then they kind of speed it up and can't recoup sacks and tackles for losses. Um, that being said, I mean, yeah, I, I the East is kind of, they're fine. This is a very standard East year. Like, I hate to say that. Like, we look at it our- It is, no, you're right. Yeah, like we look at our West and it's it's chaos. Like, it's just everywhere. This is like a pretty bread and butter East year. Now there could be a team that comes up and scares us. Uh, but the, the, the good and bad thing about that is a lot of these games could be pick em games. It's just, Hypo, obviously, I think, needs to adjust to how things are a little bit different in the SEC. And I think it's going to take him some time because he was stubborn at UCF. I mean, there was just no getting around that. And part of that was him bashing his head into a wall because his athletes were better. And he was just like, I'm going to keep running my system. I'm not going to make adjustments. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And so hopefully, you know, you look at Florida in week three and it's like, all right, well, (laughs) let's figure some things out here. Because obviously, you know, big American conference guy here, but 
there's no Florida in the American. There's not a team that you're gonna, you know, go to Gainesville, have, you know, however many fans they allowed to be there just screaming at you. So hopefully, you know, they kind of figure it out midseason, but yeah, I think six and six and, and two and six in the SEC is about fair. I think South Carolina will go five and seven, and I think South Carolina fans will still feel kind of good about it because again, context is important. Going five and seven in itself, not great. But if you beat Kentucky, if the offense looks better down the stretch with Marcus Satterfield and all the recruiting momentum is there, then you're feeling all right about Shane Beamer because, again, two-win team, ranked 125 out of 127 in FBS in percentage of returning production. And they're dealing with key fall camp injuries. If you get out of this going to a bowl game, you're ecstatic if you're South mm-hmm. Carolina. I don't quite think that happens this year. Though the good news is that it sounds like they're optimistic about Luke Doty coming back earlier rather than later. So that is good. Will, any other big takeaways from any of our East Crystal Ball stuff? No, yeah, I mean, I kind of got my, my Florida stuff out. I think that that's, that's going to be the team that I'm the most interested by in the East for sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not right on the PFF train as far as Emory being like a star necessarily, but those were my favorite Mullen teams, man. With uh, Fitzgerald, when they had a little bit, I mean, obviously the Tebow teams were the most fun, but when they had a little bit of that, um, you know, trickeration. And you saw last year how, I'm not even going to say he developed as a play caller because he's always been a great play caller, but I evolved. Yeah, I mean, Kyle Trask just, and I love Kyle Trask, he's a great quarterback, he just wasn't mobile at all. And so he was able to still get those, you know, looks and those little plays, like dump-off plays, in the place of a run game. But seeing him go through that year and then add a dual-threat quarterback, I think is going to be fascinating. A very interesting chapter of Mullen's legacy lies ahead. Mm -hmm. And his standing as an offensive mind with now three years of of developing Emory Jones in this system is... Something that I, I think is maybe being undersold a little bit, and I, I probably haven't done it justice, and we should be talking about it even more. All right, let's go to my interview with J-Boy. Great conversation with him. If you don't know his roots or how he's been able to build a platform, talking about all elements of college football and a ton of SEC stuff, we got into that. Also going to do maybe some bold predictions as well. So here is J-Boy. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Jake Crane aka J-Boy. So for those who don't know the story that, I, that I've told on this podcast, we actually met under some weird circumstances at SEC Media Days. Yeah, I, I saw that you, like me, also got hacked on Twitter, locked out of your account, the two-factor authentication nonsense, all that crap. You, you got back on because you were able to actually like get in touch with a human being at Twitter. And so I saw that. Will told me to reach out to you and see if you had kind of the secret sauce and you did. And I got back on and then the rest is history all because you put me in touch with the right person. So we got to chat uh, a good amount at SEC Media Days about non-Twitter things. So that's a weird way of saying like, go figure Twitter is one of the reasons that we're talking right now. J-Boy, you're, you're one of the few people, you can relate to, to whenever I tell my, my Twitter story. Wasn't that fun to go through that? Dude, it was, man. You know, I went from, uh, you know, panicking. It's funny because, you know, my Twitter got hacked the day before me- at Media Days. And it was my first oh, ever God. Media Days. And, you know, uh, we, we were able to get on, get it back in two days, which I, you know, think outside of Jack Dorsey may be a new course record. Um, but, you know, uh, just being able to pass it on, you know, the guy that I talked to as well, being able to help because it's just a sickening feeling, especially in this business you know, where social media is a big deal for promotion and stuff like that. Uh, at the end of the day, 
Uh, I was just glad I could help, man. And it brought us together. Sometimes Twitter can divide, but sometimes it can bring us together. Who knows? Hey, man, I love the sound of that. I had uh, I had T-Bob on last week, and we talked karaoke nice. songs at Gabriel's. He, he had Creed in his back pocket, but didn't need it. You, though, you went Jason Aldean first, and then you went with Creed. Why is Creed the greatest band to ever live? Well, you know, to me, it's an easy voice to do. You know, I, it's, it's not saying that Scott Stepp wasn't good, but Creed had some bangers, you know. Can you take me <laughs> higher? And man, what a time at Gabriel's. It's funny. You know, me, T-Bob, and Barrett Sally and, and a couple other guys were uh, singing uh, Miss New Booty by Bubba Sparks, and Bubba Sparks actually retweeted the video. So that, oh, yeah. was, uh, that was a pretty cool highlight of, of the week. But, no, look, man, you know, Creed, Creed and Nickelback are on two different levels. You know, some people try and compare them. You know, I'm, I'm not a Nickelback guy, but Creed, you know, you can pump it in there and, and listen to them jam every now and then. That's the second consecutive week in which we have referenced Bubba Sparks, Miss New Booty. So wow. we're out. Wow. <laughs> oh, T-Bob was sore. Royalties. I mean, I think we need to. T-Bob was, I know he was hurting after, after his, uh, <laughs> his performance up on stage, dancing to that song, and also well, I mean, doing the Tenacious D stuff. Yeah, well, first off, he, he absolutely balled on the Tenacious D, but, you know, he was up there moving his hips like Shakira, as horrifying as that sounds, you know, so no wonder he was <laughs> sore, man. You know, I don't know whether he was more sore after doing that or playing center versus Alabama for a game. It's probably a pretty close match. It's got to be. It absolutely has to be. I, I want to talk it's, some it's, SEC it's, stuff it's, today. It didn't lie, Connor. I promise you that. <laughs> It's really difficult for me not to say that line whenever Shakira comes up or anything involving hips comes up. So the fact that you just were able to go there, I appreciate that. I, I'm, I'm the only one who's ever going to make that reference. Uh, yeah, but, dual threat, man. I'm dual threat. <laughs> uh, I wanted to get into some SEC stuff today. I, I think the audience would also be fascinated to hear your story because how you've been able to get a platform and do the stuff that you're doing with your podcast, do the stuff that you're doing on social media, can you kind of dig into the origins of how you're able to, to start what you have currently built? <laughs> Man, it's the craziest story ever, I think. I'm, I'm gonna write a book about it one day. You know, I played at South Alabama down in the Sun Belt and got into coaching and, and coached for nine years, uh, six at the Division One level. Uh, from a football family, my father was an All-American at Auburn, coached in the SEC and, and kind of followed that path. And the pandemic hit. I was coaching up in Montana and uh, came back. And, you know, we had kind of finished up with recruiting and I was trying to, you know, make sure I wasn't, you know, wasting time or I wasn't used to wasting time. So I was like, you know, I may put a podcast or two together and got some great response. And people wanted me to keep doing more and more, or keep doing more and more of them. So I did. And the response kept getting better and better. And I was actually interviewing for the D.C. job. Uh, was flying out of the Memphis airport, drove all the way up there from Tupelo, where I was waiting to go back, and ended up looking at my brother, who was coaching Division Two at the time, and was like, man, I, I think I could do this. You know, I kind of want to see where this goes. You know, it may be a sign, and uh, sure enough, uh, we ended, I ended up buying like a $60 mic and had an old Acer laptop, because my school laptop was obviously up at school still, and it uh, just kept growing and growing and growing, and, and got called to move to Atlanta and put in a studio here, and uh, you know, uh, and again, Connor, I'm sure, you know, this is dropping uh, later during the week, but we just signed to deal with Colin Cowherd and the volume and our studios now uh, in the College Football Hall of Fame. So uh, it's been amazing, man, and, and the ride's just starting. It's crazy to think about the fork in the road moment that you probably dealt with. Of Everybody has that moment who starts off 
without necessarily that big overhead. It's it's so different in this day and age. If you get hired by a big time company, you have a more traditional rise, that's one thing. But when you're doing this, you're doing this just to try and see, hey, do, am I maybe good at this? Can I figure this out? Was there was there a moment for you where you're like, ah, you know, maybe maybe I just go and I take the, the safer job or I continue on the path that I was on before? Yeah, you know, and, and again, I had put a lot of equity in the coaching. You know, I'd worked my way up and, and it's a lot of hard work and, and a lot of people counting on you. And I, had, you know, recruited players and signed players. And uh, there was a, a couple moments of because, I, I mean, kind of no joke, I was sitting in the parking deck of the Memphis airport, had my flight booked. It was leaving in two and a half hours. And you can call it divine intervention. You can call it luck. You can call it whatever you want. Uh, but, you know, it, it's just something that, that I feel like I could do and uh, just you know, there were moments where I was like, you know, am I am I risking everything that I've built up, and, and am I taking a chance? Yes. Does that make you know people nervous? I guess yes. But I also feel like you got to bet on yourself sometimes too. And, and if I'm going to go down, it's going to be because of me. And at the end of the day, uh, when I look back on it now, you know, I, I lost my father a couple of years before, and I think I was kind of ready to take a chance. And you know, I didn't want to pigeonhole myself and. Uh, one school or really one thing because, you know, we've been covering college football, basketball, and baseball, and even a little bit more of that. But, yeah, you know, there's always moments uh, during the ride when it was tough and, uh, you know, uh, people were saying, you know, why did you get out of coaching? You did all this. You did all that. And uh, you just got to believe in yourself. And sometimes when you bet on yourself, it it comes back, and uh, uh, it has, and I just couldn't be more excited. And obviously I've had help from a lot of people and timing's everything and but no, uh, there were those moments, but you know, you persevere through them and you find out what you're made of. Most people in your shoes try to go the analyst route, but you have gone from the coaching profession to the media profession in your own unique way. And this isn't quite the exact comp, but it's kind of like some Pat McAfee vibes to what you're doing. Yeah. Was, yeah. I mean, is that kind of the, the, the path that you could see for yourself now and just trying to get on yeah. like different platforms and, and kind of do it that way? Yeah, well, it's funny you say that. The same guy who got Pat started is, is helping me now, um, and and they kind of see that same parallel. And that is, you know, my thing was I, I'm I wanted to be able to be myself, you know, and and I I didn't want to be a guy that uh you know was just trying to be funny all the time or a guy that was just you know super serious and informative all the time. It's a little bit of everything because to me that's the human experience. And uh, like I said, I didn't want to pigeonhole myself into going on one network and just doing one thing and talking about one thing all the time or, you know, just being, uh, you know, an Auburn guy or an Alabama guy or this, that, and the other. I want to see how versatile I could be because, you know, as a coach and, and, you know, in life, the more things you can do, the better chance you have to succeed. So uh, that's kind of the route that I'm going. And and I I love that comp, Connor. I appreciate that, especially coming from you. And uh, I want to try and be everywhere all the time and do multiple things and, and really show my versatility. And, and see where it lands me. Do you miss recruiting at all? Ah, man, the time, um, <laughs> the time it takes, no, but the relationships, yeah. You know, and, and when, when you look at those guys, and nothing beats the adrenaline of, of game day, and nothing beats the feeling of signing a kid, watching the kid come in as a young guy, develop, you know, go through the struggles, learn how to be a man on his own and watching him make a play out on the field, not just because it's a play that that helps the team, but it's something that, you know, you provide him a chance for a scholarship that he earned and you guys both made good on your promises and then you watch him get their degree and a lot of times it's changing 
uh, the, the family trajectory of where they came from in a lot of cases. And uh, that's the part I miss and, and hanging out with the guys and laughing and really getting to know them um, and, and being somebody that has an effect on their life. I do miss that part, but having to do it 24 <laughs> seven, 365, I, I don't miss that part. And it's funny. I always laugh now. People are like, well, you know, what's it like doing this? Cause I actually got told Connor a lot when I started by people and buddies, they're like, man, yeah, but you know, podcasters don't make any money or this, that, and the other. And, and, you know, we were very fortunate to be in the small percentage that, that has had a lot of success, but, um, no, man, it's, um, it's got its pros and cons. Uh, it does, but, but I'm enjoying it right now. I tell people it beats working for a living. Hey man, I, I love your video breakdowns. They're, they're quick, easy to understand. And I think you do a great job of explaining the X's and O's in a way that isn't too coachy, film nerd type stuff. Yeah. Or like Jordan Rogers does kind of something like that with the all 22s and the way that he'll break it down and he'll do like a five, six minute video. Yours are a little bit more concise. You're just going straight to the whiteboard and you do such a good job of, of communicating that. And because of your perspective and your background, you have credibility in that field. That allows you to have a unique voice in this industry, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I appreciate that. And, and my thing is this, there's an old uh, saying in coaching, it doesn't matter how much I know, it matters how much I know that I can get the players to know. And you'd be amazed at some guys, and there's a lot of high school coaches do an unbelievable job. But with a lot of guys, you almost got to start from square one. I mean, you, you really do. And uh, once you realize that, you know, you got to walk before you run and, and then taking that same mindset to the audience, and some people have never been exposed to that. And it's funny, I was going over just really basic stuff. What is 10 personnel? What is 11 yeah. personnel, 12 personnel, 21 personnel? And a huge Texas A&M fan hit me up and was like, man, I'm so glad you explained that to me because I just thought they were just making those numbers up. Like, like they really had you know, no importance <laughs> on anything. But being able to take, and really not even just the complex stuff, and put it in layman's terms because my goal is I want my audience to be able to watch the game in a way that they've never been able to watch it before. That's why our slogan is win the water cooler. Cause I want you, you to be able to go to work, go to that family dinner, that, that, you know, Christmas dinner, Thanksgiving dinner and turn the game on and say, Oh, well there's the power. Oh, where there's trucks. Oh, well they're running cover two. And somebody says, Oh, well, well you're just saying stuff. You don't know that. And then you can explain to them, well, they're playing cover two. Cause watch the corners. They're funneling inside to help the safety and they're working back to the flat. Uh, they're starting, you know, inside leverage to throw them off and then jump into outside leverage at the snap. So that's what I want our audience to be able to do and be able to enjoy it even more in what is such a beautiful game, but to really understand what makes it go. And not only that, Connor, but what's going on in the field house? What's going on in recruiting? Different situations that coaches actually really encounter that you would never hear about if you didn't know about it or weren't weren't told about it. So that's really kind of the the theory behind that and I've really enjoyed it and we got a lot more coming. You say um, the stuff that you encounter as a coach with recruiting, is there a weird recruiting story that maybe just sticks <laughs> out when you think about like a while, I, I'm sure in, in some of the places that you've been, you know, where yeah. even if you're up in Montana, like some of these places that you're probably going are so remote. Like, is there, is there a story that kind of stands out from your time doing that? Well, there's one at South. There's a bunch. Uh, you know, going up in Montana, I've had to recruit, you know, six-man football games. Go and watch that, oh, yeah. which is, you know, like watching something on another planet. Uh, but when I was at South Alabama, I'll never forget, it was my second year there. Yep, second year. And Danny Woodson was at LaFour High School. He's a four-star wide receiver. Committed to Alabama. His father was a legend at Bama. 
And I looked at our head coach, Joey Jones, before this seven-on-seven camp we had, and the floor was coming, and he was going to be there. And uh, I looked at him, and I was like, how much would you give me if I got Danny Woodson to commit to South Alabama over Alabama? He goes, I'll give you $5,000. And I was like, you know, to me as a young guy, I'm like, yeah, might as well be $50,000. And uh, so I was like, all right. So I'm talking to Danny and, you know, really talked to him throughout the whole camp. It was a two-day camp, uh, and we really hit it off. And, of course, he ended up signing with Alabama because, uh, you know, it, it is what it is, and that's kind of the, the nature of the beast and, and how nature takes, it co- takes its course. But fast forward three years later, Alabama's coming off a national championship. Danny Woodson gets hurt halfway through the year. He's not really kind of seeing eye to eye with his position coach. And guess who he reaches out to about transferring? <laughs> Me. And he ends up transferring to South Alabama. Now, I never got the $5,000 because technically it was oh. a transfer and not a signing at the start. But it just goes to show you, uh, you never know in recruiting. And now with the transfer portal, you talk about never burning a bridge. That's, uh, that's yeah. when I go back and tell a bunch of young coaches that I talk to that even if you don't sign a kid, uh, or something goes wrong, or you thought you had a kid in the back. Don't burn the bridge because you never know what's going to happen. So that's uh, that's that's one there that not a lot of people know, really. That's a good point. Something to definitely remember too in this new era of transfer and NIL and all those different things that are associated with those uh, relationships. I, I want to talk a little 2021 here. I know you're really high on Georgia. Tell me what you love about this offense. Well, you know, I I call it the Nick Saban epiphany. Uh, that I think Kirby's finally had. You know, a couple years ago, Nick Saban realized, well, I know I've had a ton of success. I've been dominant. I am the, you know, all-seeing eye of college football. In my opinion, he's the greatest college football coach of all time. But he was like, the game's evolving, and I, I, we need to start scoring more points. We, we need to start running a different style of offense that will score more points because the game is changing, the players are changing, the rules are changing, and he realized we got to open it up. Well, to open it up, you can't just say that. You have to bring in a guy as an offensive coordinator you trust. you got to have a quarterback that you trust. you got to have an offensive line that you trust. And I think now Kirby finally has that in Todd Munkin and JT Daniels. I think he really does. Because a lot of it is a trust thing. You know, it's like Will Farrell says in old school when he's talking about the waitress, he's like, you know, I thought we were in the trust tree. You know, the, the tree of trust, whatever, whatever. Uh, and – I really think they are going to be a pass-to-run offense. And the, the book against Georgia has been, until JT really came on last year, they're gonna, if they're going to hurt you in the passing game, it's going to be in the intermediate game and vertically off play action. But if you can get them to third and eight, if you can get them to third and six, they can't hurt you, and you can assume a lot on first down. You can make a lot of assumptions that you're going to get some gap scheme, because that's what they did at Bama when Kirby was there. They were going to line up and run the power on first down, or they were going to see how much they could get out of you in the run game and set up the play-action game, and they'll hit you with some uh, intermediate now and then. The most exotic thing they do would, God forbid, throw a slip screen or a bubble screen every now and then. But with the way that the game has changed and JT there and Monk in there, I think Kirby has finally taken his foot a little bit off the pedal offensively. And when you do that, it's amazing how the offensive players, not only the coaches can take a deep breath, but guys start making plays and you start recruiting different. You know, if you look right now, what was the big, you know, I guess you could say big knock on Alabama in the NFL. Well, they didn't have any quarterbacks in the NFL. Well, watch what happened when they changed that offense. Now look out there. They got Tua. They got Jalen. They got Mack. They're starting to put quarterbacks in the league because the system changed. It used to be just running backs because that was what the system focused on. So I think 
uh, if you look, the schedule is obviously uh, one of the easiest, if you can use that word, in the SEC. And I think this Clemson game may be the biggest insurance policy I've ever seen in an opening game uh, for Georgia. So I love their roster, and I think they're going to be a lot more explosive on offense because of the trust factor because they're in the trust tree. Who's the, the true freshman you think is going to take the SEC by storm? And tell me it's either Ajay Hall or Brian Thomas. Ajay Hall, man, I mean, they're making Julio comparisons to him. Um, and yeah. <laughs> look, at the end of the day, if you look at his body type and his body control, uh, I think it's unreal. I'm going to give you one that not a lot of people are talking about. And I just want you to remember I said it about five weeks in. Watch out for Tarvaris Dawson, Tarvaris Dawson at Auburn the wide receiver. Uh, Cornelius Williams, a, a really good buddy of mine, Auburn's wide receiver coach. I'm not going to say that we talked or anything like that, but little birdie told me that this kid has a chance to be really special, especially when he gains a little weight. Uh, I think the kid's going to be incredible, but, you know, gun to my head, a Jai Hall. And also watch out, even though he's not a, a you know, true freshman, uh, you look at Marshawn Lloyd from South Carolina. Everybody talks about Kevin yeah. Harris, and Harris is a good back. But Marshawn Lloyd was pushing him in fall camp last year as a true freshman before he tore his ACL. So watch out for Marshawn, especially since South Carolina outside of Nick Muse uh, doesn't have a lot on the outside, and he's really a flex Y type of guy. So I think they're going to focus uh, around that offense. And then Demarcus Bowman from Florida is another guy to watch out for. A lot of people are kind of wondering about Brian Harson right now. And I know he's had kind of a, a strange couple of weeks. There's the whole hat gate thing, whatever, with the media yeah. and him testing positive for COVID. We'll probably forget about both of those things in a couple of weeks, as long as health permitting, he's able to, to bounce back and, and return to action, all that stuff. But what's your overall impression of him so far? Because I feel like I really cannot get a read on the guy. Well, you know, I think that's kind of his plan. <laughs> I think he doesn't want you to yeah. get a read on him. But look, you know what? Uh, I thought Auburn hired outside of, you know, quote unquote, the family for the first time in a long time. And I actually liked it. Uh, you know, I, and again, we'll see. Uh, you got to give a guy at least two to three years, though, especially in this league to recruit. It's why, you know, I laugh. Auburn people are freaking out about recruiting, you know, about a month and a half ago. And the guy hadn't had a chance to build any relationships with these kids that Kirby has and Nick has and hadn't had a chance to show anybody anything on the field and Auburn still you know is, is just put shovels in the ground in their new facility you you got to give some uh, a guy some time you know this this is not a sport where it's easy to just flip it on its head in one year especially when Auburn's personnel and the offensive line wasn't wasn't elite and uh you know at the end of the day here's what I think is going to happen I think Auburn's going to go either seven and five or eight and four this year because it is what it is but we'll know after two recruiting classes because look you got to sign guys up front. Gus Malzahn didn't sign an offensive tackle since 2017 out of high school. You can't do that. And I think Gosh. Brian Harson and them are trying to recruit nationally, but we're not going to know. Winning cures everything. You can get whatever under the sun, say whatever you want under the sun if you're winning, but if you're not, they're going to need to know a little bit about you. So at the end of the day, the jury's going to be out until we see what's going on the field. But, you know, do I like it? I don't think it's, I don't think it's a bad hire, but we'll see because this league is as deep as it's ever been in the SEC West. And uh, you don't know until you know, I guess. So my five and seven prediction for Auburn this year, you're, uh, <laughs> you're not buying that. <laughs> nah, you know, I, I look at the schedule. You know, you, you're starting off with, with two games that you really should win, get you some confidence. Uh, I, I think Mississippi State's going to struggle. I think Arkansas is going to struggle. I, I'm not sold on K.J. Jefferson. Uh, everybody mm. keeps forgetting about him. The big games that I think are, are going to decide if Auburn has a season where you can look back and say, hey, we did some things we're proud of, is the Penn State game week three. 
you know, I don't think they're ready to play with Georgia or Alabama, even though both of those games are at home. You've got LSU on the road, which is going to be really tough, obviously. Um, but Ole Miss is going to be a big one, and it's at home. Uh, I think when you look at that one, that could be the difference in a seven and five and a five and seven, uh, or an eight and four and a seven and five. So you know, at the end of the day, uh, the schedule is going to be tough either way in the SEC. But I think there's a chance if Auburn can win some some of those hinge games, as I call them, they could sneak an eight and four year out. And if they do, that'd be a hell of a start for Brian Harson. Let's close with some bold predictions because it is bold prediction season. Uh, I want to get your five bold predictions for the 2021 season. doesn't necessarily have to be SEC specific. Okay. And if we repeated one of them with something that we just said, that's perfectly fine too. Um, so does, does that work for you? That works for me, man. Perfect. Perfect. I'll even tee up if you want to do something, if you want to do something Georgia based to start off, because I know, I know oh, you're yeah. very, well, very I mean, high. You know what one of my bold predictions is with Georgia. I can go ahead. You can go ahead and tee me up if you want. I'm, you know, I'm gonna. It's gonna be a power fade. Some people call it a slice, but we can tee it up and see what happens. All right, let's 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 start. Let's do uh, let's do your first one. The first one that comes to mind when somebody asks you a bull prediction. Georgia wins the national championship for the first time since 1980. Uh, I think it's gonna happen this year. Love it. Second one. Go ahead. Kentucky finishes second in the East. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. We've we've talked. I feel like that's that's bold, but like. Saying that they're going to finish second in the East implies they're going to have a winning conference record, which has only happened mm-hmm. once in the last 40 years. So I, exactly that, that qualifies right. as bold. Okay. Oh, uh, man. Okay. I, think Dan Mullen, I think Dan Mullen will be in the NFL within the next two years, even though I guess it's not a bold prediction for this year. I don't think a oh. lot of people are talking about that. I don't think Dan Mullen will be at Florida in the next two years. That, that, that could be based on some of the comments that he had pre- NIL era going into effect where yeah. all the rumors that yeah. came out, like, yeah, kind of take that for what it is. But yeah, that, that, I think that qualifies, that definitely qualifies as bold just because of the, the extension and all that stuff as well. All right. That's, that's three in the bank. What do you got for number four? Alabama loses at least one regular season game and the SEC championship. Oh, all right. We agree. I have the exact same thing. Cause I got them losing to a and M October 9th and then losing in the SEC championship to Georgia, which I'm guessing that's what you have, right? You have an SEC championship of, of Georgia beating Alabama? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Perfect. All right. Well, it's, I mean, five, if we're doing five, we got we to gotta end with a bang, right? So this can't be like yeah. Vandy hits the over on the win projection. What do you got for your last <laughs> one? Well, I don't think they're going to do that. I think, and listen, I, I don't want Florida fans to, you know, just hate me. I've got no problem with Florida. I think Florida finishes fourth in the East and Todd Grantham is fired halfway through the season. Oh gosh. Fourth in the East. So is that, that, that means Mizzou is finishing ahead of Florida? Yes. I got Missouri finishing third. Dang. All right. J-Boy. That's bold, man. That's, that's bold and brash as we like you to say You wanted bold here. predictions, man. You wanted bold predictions. You're going to get them. Dude, that is it right there. Really appreciate the time. This was a lot of fun, man. Hopefully we can, uh, we can meet up at, at an SEC game or something like that this year. But as I said to you in Atlanta, or not in Atlanta, but Hoover rather, uh, respect the hustle and uh, wish you the best of luck with everything. All right, buddy. Talk soon. How about this one? I call it bold and brash. More like belongs in the trash. <laughs> Sorry, I must have missed that one. Will, you are a SpongeBob guy and I am not. Bold and brash is, wow. is your baby. 
I'm never, <laughs> I'm never gonna take credit for the name. That is 100% your baby, but this is in replace, in replacement of Let's Get Bold, as we talked about in last pod. Um, these are bold predictions from the Facebook group, specific to the SEC East. We did the SEC West ones the other day. Again, if you have not yet, go back and listen to that pod as well. Bold and brash. Bold and brash. Love the sound of it. I don't use that word enough. <laughs> brash. Come to think of it. Brash. Brash is a strong, that's a strong football word. That is. Coaches got to work that into their press conferences more. Brash. Gonna, oh, yeah. We're be brash here today. <laughs> <laughs> this first one, Chad McKee. Chad says, Zamir White goes for 1,300 yards and Kendall Milton goes for 1,000 rushing yards. Only... Okay. Interesting. Um, only Georgia running back to hit 1,300 yards in the playoff era was Nick Chubb, who did it twice, 2014-2017. White and Milton both hitting the century mark would be reminiscent of like... 2018, DeAndre Swift, Elijah Holyfield both surpassed 1,000 yards. Did you know, Will, that Elijah Holyfield is Evander Holyfield's son? Crazy. Never heard that before. <laughs> Never heard it ever. I think it's been like two years since we brought that up. So, good. Hopefully, we met our quota on Shout that. out him, man. Yeah. What, what's Evander up to these days? Um, not at Georgia games cheering on Elijah anymore. This prediction, as many Georgia fans um, have probably already pointed out, sort of omits James Cook. But if you think that he's going to be used a lot more in the passing game, which he could be with the banged up options right now that they have in the passing game, then that would make sense. The white part of this, pretty standard. If you're a Zamir White believer, you think Zeus is going to take off full season in the system, healthy, ready to go. All right, get it. But the Milton part, I'm a fan of Kendall Milton. And... I still think, though, that this is very bold, definitely bold, considering he was fifth on the team in carries last year, and all four guys who got more carries than him are back, which is why I keep saying if you want to go one through five, Georgia has as much backfield depth as probably anyone in the country. Edwards, McIntosh, the two other guys that I haven't named. Milton is healthy this year after getting hurt against Florida, didn't get back until the Peach Bowl. I think one can use him a lot more. And I, I, I agree with Chad. Like he, He's definitely a breakout candidate. Home run playability, it's there. Georgia's backs should benefit a lot more this year from a system that actually spreads teams out and they're able to not necessarily have these seven, eight-man boxes. I think they should see a lot more of these favorable running lanes up the middle, even between the tackles. I think that'll be there. I still don't think they run the ball quite enough to have two guys finished with 1,000-yard seasons. Georgia only threw the ball 25 and a half times a game in 2018, and that was back when they had Swift and Holyfield pull that off. I think they throw the ball probably like 30, 35 times a game with JT Daniels, but I do love the Kendall Milton breakout prediction. Every picker had Milton as Georgia's leading rusher this year, so Chad is not alone. Hmm. Georgia running backs. You got to remember that and be be tagging people if that happens. Because, like, I thought I was crazy for a second. I was like, I thought there were a couple guys ahead of him. But, obviously, you know, people love him, and he's generating a lot of buzz. So, that that seems like a very interesting – it wouldn't surprise me. You know what I'm saying? If you're a Georgia running back and you haven't been predicted to have a 1,000-yard season, are you really a Georgia running back? I don't know. <laughs> uh, this I, I teased this one earlier. This is from Adam Stockton. Adam says – Kentucky starts the year 6-0 and goes into Athens. It will be um, a matchup of undefeated top 10 teams. 6-0 for Kentucky. 
This might be the boldest prediction we've had yet in Bold and Brash. <laughs> Those first six we had, games. You know what's funny? We had Coach O going 6-0, and oh, and I still feel like this is a little bit no, bolder. No, we, we had Coach O going 6-6. 6-6, six and six. Six and six, I mean. 6-6, six six and six, six. I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I feel like this is more bold. I think it is. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, the first six games, if you look at it, Louisiana Monroe at home, again, Rich Rod's offense, Terry Bowden as well. Um, Mizzou at home, Chattanooga at home, shout out to T.O. At South Carolina, and then Florida at home, LSU at home. Again, Kentucky has not beat Florida in Lexington since 1986. That game, House of Horrors, Kentucky fans know that all too well. 16 consecutive losses to Florida in Lexington. Big, big game for friends of the show as well. Doring's got a touchdown, 93. Mm -hmm. You had the two uncovered receivers in 2017 with our guy Luke Del Rio. 2019 Kyle Trask game where he put up 19 unanswered points in the fourth quarter after Florida trailed by two scores, the Felipe Franks injury, all that stuff. Very bold, very bold to predict that as a win in itself. But then following that up by beating LSU would be something. Another home game, so not impossible. Should be a really good game. Matthew Sadro said he thinks that this will be one of the best conference games all year. I think the Bluegrass Miracle gets brought up once or twice. Probably. A couple times. Probably. I think LSU's defense will, will show its improvement in this one. Um, if, if I'm doing like the, the not so bold projection, projection for this game and there could mm -hmm. be picks from Eli Ricks, Mike Jones, the Clemson transfer, I probably haven't talked about enough stepping into that role that Jabril Cox was in last year. But I'll say this. Who? Mike Jones. Mike Jones. <laughs> we were late on that today. We were late. <laughs> I think... If Kentucky starts off 6-0, here's what we got to do. So you said we got to tag people. We got to hold them more accountable for, for this stuff. If Kentucky starts off 6-0, Adam Stockton has an open invitation to come on the podcast, and we'll just give him praise. Let's talk about how, oh, yeah. how much he knew about Kentucky. Hopefully he got some sort of future in there with that set up, although I don't know if you can do you can't do like front half of the season wagers or anything like that, but that's bold. That's very, very bold. So I told you we'd circle back to that. Will... 6-0 for Kentucky. Um, you putting a flyer down on that? Kentucky and Arkansas got to be the most root forable teams in the SEC, right? I agree. I mean, they're I just... Agree. I love both of their head coaches. I love both of their systems. They do so many fun things. Um, Mississippi State as well, I give them an honorable mention. But, yeah, I mean, you saw me doing it earlier. It's like I'm looking at that Florida game, and it's like, well, you know, if they go undefeated for this stretch, which is easy. Like, going into the Florida game undefeated is very doable. If they beat Florida, you know what I'm saying, then they just got to beat LSU. And if they're good enough to beat Florida, one would think. I don't know. I mean, it's not, it's, it's a, you know, I'm not going to act like it's like a super possible thing. I give it, you know, a 15 to 20% chance of happening. Uh, that being said, like, like me, like I said, me personally, I'm more keyed in on that Florida game because I feel like those are two teams that'll be at similar, you know, jockeying for like that next spot behind Georgia and potentially, you know, uh, potentially a New Year's Six Bowl. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm with Matthew, Matthew Sadro. I feel like, LSU Kentucky is going to be a very fun game this year. But yeah, I mean, that three game stretch is just so brutal. I, I, I feel for them because they could have a great season yeah. and feel de completely deflated in the middle of it. And that's, that's what Kentucky usually does. That's what I think Mark Soups does such a good job at is, yeah, some of it might be a little bit competition based, but I think if you look back, even going back to 2017, what they have done is always kind of figure out, all right, first two games, what are we? What do we? What what can mm -hmm. we? What can we sell? What can we we improve? Even when they make the switch to Lynn Bowden, and all of a sudden, 
Kentucky is all in with the running game in a way that teams in the Power Five just are not. And oh, yeah. they figure out kind of who they are mid-season, and they're able to usually capitalize on that down the stretch. Figuring out who you are against Florida, against LSU, a little bit of a tougher thing to do. Um, so I, that's why I'm a little bit more conservative with my, my, my Kentucky projections. But, man, 6-0. If we're going to get weird in 2021, let's get weird with Kentucky. Kentucky would be a fun team to watch at 6-0. I think as well, oh, yeah. and watching that that fan base sort of react to that, and and having that build up going to the George game, that pseudo SEC East title game in 2018 was great, and I felt really bad because I wrote a column in the week leading up, like, oh, Kentucky's not going to be on Georgia's level at all, because watching some of the things that Georgia was able to do in the ground game, I was like, they're they're going to put them away, and then that wasn't that wasn't a bold prediction, that was not bold and brash, but that happened. But Kentucky was fun, and they got to host an SEC East title game. And if they get any opportunity like that, man, Adam Stockton's going to be sitting pretty. We, I, I know I've talked about this before, but it's kind of funny how like Mullen and um, uh, Stoops have kind of done the inverse of each other. Like Mullen got in the league in the SEC. It was just pounding the rock. You know what I'm saying? It was just with Booby Dixon. And then Stoops got in the league and was wide open. And it didn't work. Like it just straight didn't work. He came in there with that air raid offense the first couple of years, didn't really have the personnel for it, and adapted to like this ground and pound thing. And then Mullen did the opposite, started with the ground and pound, and then has now w- made it wide open. So that's going to be a fun game, man. That will be good. I, I agree. Those two, those two home games, consecutive weeks of fun in Lexington. Uh, this one from Charles R. Todaro. Charles says, Chuck says, we'll call him Chuck. He says, Mizzou versus A&M for the SEC title. Somewhere. What? Somewhere. Hold on. Adam Spencer (laughs) just did a massive fist pump. And he's like, yes, Mizzou in the SEC championship coming out of the East. By the way, um, Mizzou has its AAU accreditation. I left that out when I did that rant against the Big Ten and talking about how there was only three SEC schools with AAU accreditation. Mizzou is the fourth. My bad. Disrespect. I, I totally disrespected Mizzou on that. Charles doesn't have AM losing in the regular season finale and forking over a golden opportunity like I do. We did the AM part of this last week, but the Mizzou part, if this played out, which extremely difficult for a program who hasn't had a winning season in the SEC since it went to the title game back in 2014. And considering Mizzou just lost its best player on each side of the ball, Larry Roundtree, Nick Bolton, this would be pretty wild. Also, um, plus 4,000 to win the SEC on FanDuel. But if it did, if it did, the conversation about Eli Drinkowitz would be fascinating. Mizzou would have to fend off like the, the big name programs with a potential opening. Think about mm-hmm. like if USC or Nebraska, Michigan, if these jobs come open, they would they would be looking for somebody like Eli Drinkowitz if he were to turn Connor Bazelak into an all SEC quarterback, which if you're getting to the SEC championship, I assume that that's what that would include as well. And they would have, you know, a top 25 offense in the country. Maybe there would still be conversation about Drinkowitz if Mizzou were to go like eight and four in the regular season. Um, it sounds like Charles believes in that. Chuck, my bad. As well as maybe predicting some lofty things for Connor Bazelak, who spells his name correctly with two N's and an L. Will, a little too much Mizzou love or worth taking a flyer? Uh, Mizzou A&M's wild. I do think Mizzou could be the riser in the East. 
Yeah, like you said, I, I think eight and four is very possible. I I love Coach Drink, and I think he fits so well at Mizzou. And I won't say any anything beyond that about this because that's my opinion. All right, let's do this. This leads right into it. So this one from Joshua Hansen, kind of a similar a similar um, school of thought here. Bama and Georgia both miss the SEC title game. Perfect tease into what we're going to talk about next week with all my Power Five champs, okay. maybe some awards. Only one of the last 10 SEC title games didn't have either Alabama or Georgia. So they've one of those two teams has been in nine of the last 10. And the one that didn't feature one of those two teams, of course, was 2013, Auburn-Mizzou, awesome game. Pretty sure Trey Mason, oh, yeah. like Trey Mason probably just ran for another touchdown by the time I finished this sentence. That game was, it was a one point game with the half because they missed the PAT. That was on in the gym this morning. I was like, wow, this game was much closer than that. And what was the, it was like 56 to 43 or something like that. Yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a barn burner. Anyway. Um, this would be fascinating because I think the league kind of needs a shakeup within the divisions and it would create this kind of chaos scenario with Oklahoma, Texas coming into the league. But the most likely scenario probably isn't um, what our guy Chuck had suggested before with Mizzou and A&M, as entertaining as that would be to see. A&M in Florida is probably the most likely non-Bama Georgia SEC championship, little rematch of last year, either that or LSU Florida. And I didn't really realize this until I looked this up, but it kind of, I mean, one didn't come to mind off the top of my head. It's kind of hard to believe that they haven't ever played in an SEC championship. Well, it's very easy to believe because LSU was horrible for the entirety of the 90s. No, but still. And Florida was great for the entirety of the 90s. And then pretty much LSU had one good season in 07 and then were bad for the team of the year. Think about it though. So, think, about, think about all the overlap with Miles and Urban and, and having the overlap oh yeah. where they at least had relevance in the 2010s where they got to two with McElwain as well. And LSU has such a high floor. I'm still a little, like, it still kind of surprised me a little bit that it hasn't happened once. That's all. Yeah, well, they also play in the regular season, too. You got to think about that as far as like it's always hard to get that yeah. game. Yeah, it's yeah. always hard to get that game back. Right. Like, it's usually you have to beat one team, like Alabama or Georgia. Sure. And then, yeah, it's hard to, you know, lose that game and then go on to win your division. Okay, good point. And then, yeah, with ba- yeah, all right. Okay, that makes more sense. I take that take back. <laughs> also, LSU 7-3 and three in the 2010s versus Florida. Anyway. <laughs> Seven and four after this year because Florida pulls off the upset. Emory Jones game. Well, it's, it's no longer the twenty. It's no longer the twenty. All right, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to quit while on the head. We'll, we'll end with this one from Randall Houston. He says Tennessee breaks the streak against Bama. Buddy, Josh Heupel does that year one. The statue <laughs> is going up. The streak is at fourteen. In case you lost track, Saban in year one was Tennessee's last win against Bama. I think at least this happens. I'm going to say at least this happens. Tennessee has its best offensive showing against Bama since 2003. Okay. This is going to blow you away. Because you hear that and you're like, oh my God, so you're predicting this game to be close? No, 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 no. (laughs) If Tennessee exceeds 21 points, it will have its best offensive showing against Bama since 2003. Yep. Been 18 years. Been 18 years. It's baffling. Absolutely baffling. You told me uh, someone couldn't be hired for more than four years in the state of Mississippi today, and this is still the craziest thing you told me. <laughs> 21 po- Yeah. All right. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. Um, 
Tennessee's offense, as we've said, built to score against Bama a little bit better, I think, than years past, just because you got to hit on some chunk plays. You, you can't try and methodically drive. You've seen it over and over again, even when you're on the goal line and your quarterback goes rogue and you fumble and it's a game-changing fumble. You can't do that. Oh, that did happen. Yeah, you did do that. Yeah, that happened. You need more chunk plays. Tennessee has at least a better chance of executing some of those, and they're going to try and take some take some shots downfield. So, um, yeah. Uh, I, if, if this happens, Randall, you know what? You're welcome to come on the pod as well. You are more than welcome to because you're calling your shot right now, and that's what we asked for. We asked for this in bold and brash, but that is bold, man. That is really, really bold. A lot of great stuff. Thank you to everybody who submitted responses. Got so many responses for that. We have to do that during the season. I think that's something that we're gonna to. we're gonna have to make. If it's not a weekly staple, it's a bi-weekly staple. We'll do predictions going into the weekend, and it can be about anything. It can be individual players, can be SEC related, Big Ten related, whatever. As long as it's bold, as long as it's brash. Our new favorite word here mm-hmm. on Saturday on Sunday. Gotta be brash. You really gotta hit the brash bar high. Like A&M Mizzou, that's brash right there, man. Bold is one thing, but brash, I mean, we're, we're talking about something entirely different. Um, we might have two interviews coming with the pod later in those later in the week. We have one definitely lined up. Potentially another person who would be a first-time guest could be joining. She would be a first-timer. There is your hint as well. Um, leave us a five-star review. Like, subscribe, go subscribe to our newsletter, go subscribe to College Football Uncensored, Saturday Lives Forever. Go do that wherever you get your podcast. Join the Facebook group and hear your name right on air with Figure It Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.